Our scripture is from Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. I'll read from ESV. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and has nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. That's the word of the Lord. So today we're going to be starting a mini-series. We, we just wrapped up our time in Esther. Uh, it was like a 12-week series. We're going to do a short series titled Praying Like Jesus. Right? It's, it's been um, our heart as leadership, elders and pastors, we really want our church to have a healthy culture, a robust culture of prayer. And it's, we're, as we're entering year five of a church plan, I think one area that we really can grow is in this area of not only personal prayer, but corporate prayers. If you could, if you could kind of see from the beginning of this year, we have launched a midweek uh, prayer and worship night once a month, first Wednesday of every month. We also have on Sunday pre-service prayer. Also after service, we, we extend about 10 to 15 minutes for us to be able to create space to pray. So, so we, we really want to be intentional about uh, praying corporately, but also personally. But I recognize this doesn't just happen, right? Church doesn't become just a praying church on its own. We need to be intentional. So uh, we are in the process of putting together a prayer team. As Pastor Mike said, if you're interested, you have a heart to intercede for not just the city, but people in our congregation, our leadership. Please talk to Pastor Mike. And, and, and just want to encourage us to join this effort as, as we are going, to, we want to really mature as a church in this area. So as part of that, I, I'm hoping that our time, we're going to spend four weeks in this series, pray, Praying Like Jesus, uh, that our hearts would be stirred to really pray, to seek the Lord, not only personally, but corporately. In this four-week teaching series, uh, the first two messages, including today's, we're going to take a look at what Jesus the teachings that Jesus gave us concerning prayer. And then final two sermons, Pastor John and myself, we're going to team up and we're going to unpack John 17, Jesus' priestly prayer, probably the perhaps the longest prayer that's been recorded that's been prayed by Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's, uh, apps, Bibles, let's open up to Luke 11 and we're going to walk through this passage. 
You see, by give a little bit of context. By this account in Luke 11, by this time, Jesus' disciples have seen their teacher do some amazing things. This is not the beginning of their ministry. This is probably towards the end of their ministry. They've seen Jesus silence a violent storm. We've seen that, right? They've also seen Jesus raise a dead person from death. They've also seen Jesus defy gravity by walking on water, silencing a violent storm. They've also seen Jesus feed thousands and thousands of people with just a boy's lunch. Yet it is worth noting that the only request that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, only request that Jesus' disciples had for Jesus was verse 1, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Notice, it isn't Jesus, teach us how to turn water into wine. That would be pretty cool. Any wine lovers? It isn't Jesus, teach us how to silence storm or defy gravity and walk on water. It isn't teacher, teach us how to preach this wonderful sermon. Instead, it is Jesus, teach us how to pray. Perhaps his disciples, and I think his disciples recognized much of Jesus' power and ministry and the things that he was able to do derived from his prayer life. And we see that throughout the gospel, throughout the gospel account, Jesus, right before there's a big shift in his ministry, right before he's about to do something different, he spends intentional time away from the crowd praying. So again, his disciples... They ask, teacher, we want to know how to pray. We see you praying. We see how much that's making a difference in the way you live your life. We also want that. So teach us how to pray. This is one of the more rare times the disciples of Jesus actually ask the right question. If you, if you notice throughout the Gospels, Often, Jesus' disciples are lost. They ask the wrong questions. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Or, or how can I sit next to you at the end of everything? But this is one of the rare times they do ask the right question. And Jesus gladly complies to their request and says in verse 2, Pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer. You, if you grew up in the church, you pro- probably prayed this prayer over 100 times, maybe 200 times. And it is one of the most powerful prayers, prayers that is given to us. There's a book uh, by a pastor that I really love called, called Pastor Daryl Johnson. He wrote a book called 57 words that changed the world. 57 words. And a few years ago, actually here at King's Cross, we did a whole teaching on the Lord's Prayer. It's available free of charge. Maybe I should charge you guys. It's free of charge online. If you're interested, uh, please make sure you download it, listen to it. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful teaching. And a lot of that teaching came from the book, 57 words that changed the world. But for our time today, instead of looking at the Lord's Prayer, because it'll take us probably six weeks to do that, I want us to look deeper into the encouragement, the encouragement portion of the passage that Jesus gives concerning prayer. So verses 5 to 13, right? Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. If you're looking at it with me, 
rest of the passage after Jesus teaches them how to pray the Lord's Prayer is really Jesus encouraging his disciples why they should pray, why prayer works, why they can confidently approach God the Father with their needs. The whole thing is about encouragement. At the heart of that very encouragement in verses 5 to 13, there is this rather seemingly insignificant parable. And and the parable goes like this. Verse 5, he says, Imagine a man, this is Jesus, encouraging his disciples to pray after teaching the Lord's Prayer. He says, Imagine a man goes over to his friend's house asking for some bread in order to host a visitor to his home. So the friend inside the house says something rather interesting. Right? He says, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in, in bed with me. I cannot get up, give you anything. And then in verse 8, Jesus gives his commentary. And he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, persistence, bold asking, the friend will rise and give him whatever he needs. In a quick glance of this parable, the lesson seems rather simple and straightforward. What's the lesson? Be persistent. Eventually, God will give you what you need. I grew up in a Korean church. My father was pastor of a Korean church. Morning prayer, right? They do morning prayer from like Monday to Saturday from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. And this is one of the things my, 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 my parents taught me. Just be persistent. Continue to knock down God's door. And eventually, if you annoy, annoy him enough, he'll give you what you need. But several years ago, I had a chance to spend some time with an older pastor uh, from Canada. He was near retirement, a wonderful teacher, a very humble gentleman. He loved the Lord. He wonderful teacher of scripture. And we were hosting him for a retreat uh, several years ago, probably 10 some years ago. And we had a whole day, just him and I hanging out, right? We're at Starbucks, and he's like, Simon, if you have any questions about ministry, preaching, just let me know. So we started, we started nerding out about scripture, about preaching, about ministry. Um, and this gentleman, he's in his 70s now, he just answered all of these questions, right? About scripture, about preaching. And then somehow we started talking about parables. I think at that, at that time, I was preparing to teach like a series a Wednesday night series on the parable of Jesus. And as we're talking about preaching and parables, uh, this pastor, his, his, his eyes just lit up. Like he was like, wait, wait, I gotta talk to you about this. And we actually spent a whole hour talking about this parable in Luke 11. And he said, if you truly understood this parable correctly, this parable would completely change the way you think about prayer. And I was like, Pastor, Pastor Darrell, Pastor Darrell Jones. I'm like, it's pretty simple. The lesson is persistence, and then God will give you what you need. And he says, no, there's no, this is nothing, this, this parable is nothing about our persistence. It's about something else. So three things I want to highlight from our passage. And hopefully, at the end of our time, we'll be able to get a better grasp of Jesus' real intention by telling this story. So much of today's teaching is owed to a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. Uh, he was a pastor. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. Uh, 
Kenneth Bailey passed away several years ago. These are some of his wonderful books. I was introduced to him by the pastor that, that, that we're, I was talking to. Um, and those years of living in that culture, Pastor Kenneth Bailey, the, the scholar, he spent 40 years in living in the Middle East and teaching in these seminaries. And by teaching in that context, he was able to get a better grasp of what these stories were really about. So these are wonderful uh, books that I highly recommend. If you're like seminarian, you want to dig into parable. These are wonderful books. So I have three observations, three things I want to highlight to land us where we ought to land with this parable. So first observation is this. Jesus begins this parable with a rhetorical question that expects negative reply. So if you and I were to rephrase the question that we find in this passage, verse 5, it would sound something like this. He's looking at his disciples. Jesus wants to encourage them to pray. He says, can any of you imagine a friend who would not loan you bread to host a guest, even if the guest came in the middle of the night? And the disciples, what Jesus is expecting his disciples to say or think is what? No, we cannot imagine it. In our culture, in our context, when a friend comes over and asking for bread, even if it's the middle of night, it's not a big deal. We should get up and give them bread to be a better host to a guest of the town. See, things get less clear when we attempt to read this story through our modern culture, right? Imagine tonight, midnight, I show up, knock on your door, I'm like, hey, I need, I need some bread. I need some rice. I need whatever. How would you guys respond? I mean, if you came over to my house after 10 and you woke up my kids, I had to get up and open the door. I will not be your pastor anymore, right? That, that's, we don't even like calling each other at all. We don't, we like to text. I realize like young people don't even like to call anymore. I call people all the time. They're like shocked. Like, why are you calling me? I'm like, it's a phone. I'm supposed to call you. We live in this culture, but in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, hosting an outside guest like this friend in this story wasn't simply the job of the host family, but it was a duty of everyone in town. It was a very common practice, actually, for the host family to go around asking for contribution from their neighbors. Contribution of food, wine, bread, whatever they needed, everybody everybody culturally was supposed to contribute to serve and to, to be able to host this guest really well, right? And this is still very common in many cultures, maybe not ours, but in many cultures. The sense of hosting the guest as a community. Before kids came along, Lois and I used to travel. We used to go to these wonderful, exotic places. Now we just go to very boring, place, very boring places, but we used to travel around Asia. And whenever we visited smaller regions, like smaller towns, people often would ask us, how do you like our town? How do you like our community? And I'm like, I'm, for me, from being West, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I guess this is your town and it's great. Which is rather strange question for someone who grew up in the Western culture, Right yet not in the other parts of the world, even more so in the first century Middle Eastern culture. Kenneth Bailey tested this theory while he was teaching theology in the Middle East, and he asked, what would you do if someone showed up and said they needed something to entertain a guest? Everybody would say, well, get up and give them whatever you need. That's the culture. 
plus the friend's request. What the friend is asking, he's not asking for some meat. He's not asking for anything extravagant. Bread was not a big request. Culturally, bread was a small part of the meal. And often in their culture, often people ran out of bread. So when you ran out of bread, you would just go over, over to next door and say, can I, buy, can I borrow some bread? I'll, I'll pay you back next time I bake. This was a very, just part of the culture. So this is what Dr. Bailey says about verses 5 to 7. And he says, verses 5 to 7 are together an extended question that expects an emphatic negative answer. Jesus is saying, can you imagine having a friend going to him with a sacred request to help you entertain a guest? And then he offers silly excuses about sleeping children and a barred door. The obvious answer is no, we cannot imagine it. That This does not make any sense. In fact, these excuses for people in that culture are humorous and unthinkable at the time. Children will eventually fall asleep. I know we've got a bunch of parents here like, I cannot believe you're going to wake up children. That's, that's not a big deal. Children will eventually fall asleep again. Unlocking a door is not a difficult process. It wasn't like they had this high security system. It was just, you unlock a door. So that's our first observation. Second observation, the word we find in verse 8, the word is anaidayan. Anaidayan which ESV translates as impudence, NIV translates as shameless audacity. King James says his importunity, NLT says shameless persistence. So is that the right translation of the word? This is really important. We're not saying that, so this is, we gotta, we gotta be able to separate this. We're talking about the right translation. Dr. Bailey argues there is probably a better way to translate this word, an idea. It's not, so he, what he argues is it's not shamelessness, it's not impudence, it's not persistence, or shameless boldness. You see, the word anaidian is one of these words that have two different meanings. There are some English words that have two different meanings. Anaidian is one of these words that have two different meanings. It has a positive meaning, and then there's a negative meaning. Positive meaning is bold persistence, just like how many of these Bibles, Bible translators have translated boldness. The negative meaning is a little different. It is this idea of avoiding shame, doing, doing things to avoid shame. So positive meaning is this boldness, Negative meaning is avoiding shame. And Dr. Bailey argues for the negative meaning of the word, to avoid shame. You see, for the people living in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, avoiding shame was a huge deal. In their culture, a huge motivating factor for people to actually do the right thing was driven by shame or to this desire not to dishonor the family name. In a more Western culture or non-traditional culture, it's not shame that, that really causes people to do the right thing. It's something else. But in, in, in more traditional homes, like Eastern homes, if you grew up in an Asian home, some of us know honor and shame play a much bigger role than our Western, Western friends. So when I was in high school, I had gotten few speed tickets, few, few, several speed tickets. But one ticket 
I was going like 65 in a 25 school zone, right? So 65, that's like almost intent to kill. If you don't know America, it's, it's, a, it's pretty bad. It's like a $500 fine. Uh, I, I, I had my license less than a year, so I, my license was suspended. So in order for me to drive again, which I needed to drive to go to school and to work, my, so they told me, you need to attend a class with one of, one of the parents. You guys had to come on a Saturday, spend about eight hours learning how to drive again, right? So we, we, we went to this like government building, we went to this class, and there's just a bunch of kids with their parent, right? It was just common. And my mom just gave it to me all day. She was like, I'm so embarrassed. We have to be here. I have to be here. I have to get off work and learn. Like, and mom was just like, this is so shameful. I hope I don't run into anybody, right? I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like, and all, you know, I, I see other kids and their parents, they're fine. They're just like hanging out, enjoying their time, learning how to drive again. Cause you know, none of us know how to really drive. Um, but my mom was so embarrassed. She was like, I did not raise you right. How can you like, how can you do this? And I didn't hear the end of it until uh, I found out later that she had to go back to class because she racked up some tickets. Mom, if you're, if you're watching, I know you did that. She never told me this, though. Right? Apple does not fall, fall far from the tree. But shame worked in my house, in, in the home, in, in, in my house. Like this idea, like growing up, even in the West, I thought, man, if I do something, man, and if I do something wrong, People are going to judge my parents. People are going to judge our family. And worked in some ways for me to do the right thing. It also worked in the Middle Eastern culture, in the culture that Jesus is speaking into. In fact, this commitment and honor, right, in their culture was one of the highest standards of life. Worth more than money, right? At that time, for us, probably money talks. But for people at the time... Honor spoke far greater things than money, even money. And if one would lose his honor because of his wrong action in friendship, suicide was a legitimate option for that person. It wasn't shocking for people to to find out someone committed suicide because they were dishonored. Honor was a huge deal. I mean, you still hear things about honor killing. And things in the Middle East, this is, this is a real for people in the context. But here is why none of our English translation, translation, by English translations have opted, Bible translations have opted to use shame, to avoid shame. You see, the first translator of New Testament scripture were Greeks and Romans. They were from the West and not East. So when they read this passage and was working on this section of the scripture, they couldn't comprehend this concept of shame or this idea of avoiding shame. So they opted for the positive meaning, positive definition of the word, which is boldness. And in the process, radically changed what the parable is meant to teach us. It's one of the rare times where many translators could have used a better word. Listen to Dr. Bailey. He says, the word anidian has nothing to do with person outside nor his persistence in asking for bread. It's referring to the person inside, actually. It's him who will get up and give him bread. Why? Because he doesn't want the townspeople 
to wake up next morning and find out he didn't do what was culturally required of him. Right. So if this, this friend inside did not get up and refused to give bread because a friend came over late, next day everybody in the town will find out and he will be in big trouble. He will be shamed for his unwillingness to share bread. In fact, if you look at verse 8, grammatically, any writer would, would be able to tell this. There are a total of six clauses. I've marked them for you. There are six total clauses. And the subject of all those clauses are the person inside. Can we get the next slide, actually? There you go. You see these six clauses I've marked for you. I'm getting a little nerdy here, right? Six clauses. And the subject of all these clauses are are about the person inside in verse 8. He will not get up, talking about the man inside. He will not give him anything. It's about the man inside because he is his friend, talking about the man inside. But then all of a sudden, the fourth clause, the subject of that clause is no longer person inside, but it's the person outside. Or is that right? Again, when the first Bible translators opted to use persistence because they were from the West, not East. It only made sense, even though grammatically it was a hard stretch, it only made sense to attribute the fourth clause to the person outside, not inside, naturally breaking the flow. Again, it's not hard to see that every clause in verse 8 actually belongs to person inside. This parable is really about the actions of person inside and what he will do. You guys still with me? That was a lot. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I just hit you guys with that information. But if we put all of these things together, all the things we've talked about, cultural, gra grammatical, and even the attribution of this verse 8... What's the implication? So what? Pastor Simon, you, you, you're nerding out, but what's the point? I have a point. You see, if we put these puzzles together, it completely changes the encouragement that Jesus wants to give us through this parable. So Jesus' encouragement, if you put all of these things together, Jesus' encouragement here isn't, as long as we don't give up and continue to approach God with this boldness and persistence, He will eventually give us what we need. That's not Jesus' encouragement. What He is saying, what Jesus wants, how Jesus wants to encourage His disciples and maybe perhaps many of us, is that pray, you should pray like this because God not only loves you and I as His children, but He loves His own name. And on that name, He will hear and meet our needs. Through this parable, Jesus wants you and I to know this wonderful nature of God. God who delights in His own name. God who finds great pleasure in His own name. God, who will do everything in His power to make sure His name stays great. This is why when the disciples asked, originally in verse 1, asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, Jesus starts this teaching by saying, pray like this, God, hallowed be Your name. You see, to hallow something means to amplify, to make something great, to make something known. So even, so when you and I pray these words, we are pressing into 
the wonderful nature of God. We are praying to God, His heart, because He is God who desires to be hallowed. In fact, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament text, throughout the Old Testament text, different passages, this idea of God honoring His own name is very evident and clear. It's one of the major themes of the Old Testament. And Ezekiel 36 does a wonderful job of, of showing us. This is just the one example of many that we find in the Old Testament Scripture. Ezekiel 36, the context is Israel is utterly unfaithful, right? At the time of this message that Ezekiel gives, they're in captivity under Babylon with no land, no army, no power to be restored. Yet through the words of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, God reassures his people that this is not how things will end for them. Instead, God promises revival, restoration, and this idea of you guys are going to be fine. You guys are going to actually go back to your land and I'm going to bless you and you're going you're gonna to speak of my great name. And if you have your Bibles, Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 25, he says, God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, new spirit, and remove the heart of stone and give you heart of flesh. And in verse 22, God makes it very clear that He's going to do all of these wonderful things, not because of them. He says, look at verse 22, I will do these things for you because... For the sake of my holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. You have damaged my reputation. But you know what? Because I care so much about my name and my glory. I take pleasure in my name. I'm going to restore you. Not because you are worthy. Not because you are repenting. Not because you are coming back to me. But because, simply because I care deeply about my reputation. So friends, I know many of us, if not all of us, have come to this space with some type of need. Some of us are in need of God's provision. Some, God's healing. We pray for our sister Connie and Changwon, healing. Some, for God's intervention in your life in certain areas. For others of us, we need directions and wisdom. We need healing from our past, our, our past trauma. I need healing from my past trauma. You need healing. Even our physical sickness, some of us are battling some type of sickness. And, and, and I don't want to pretend to know all of your needs. And I'm sure maybe you don't even really know what you need. But I know this, when we bring these needs as God's son and God's daughter to him and pray in his name like Jesus has encouraged us to do, then the scripture promises that not only he hears us, but he's going to answer our prayers. Do you believe this? And, and when you put this together, then rest of the passage makes sense. Because Jesus says what? Knock, seek, ask. It will be given to you. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to say, continue coming, 
continue to pester God, annoy Him enough, and He's going to eventually maybe give you what you need. Seek as not. That's not encouragement. The encouraging thing is, what Jesus is saying is, look at who God is. If you come to Him and pray in His name, God loves you, but also God loves His name, and because of His name, He's going to meet your needs. And if we step away from this text and sort of zoom out, this is also why the gospel is not gospel of do better, do more, clean up your life before you come to me. That's not the gospel that we know. No, it's an invitation. Come as you are. Come, even if you don't feel like you deserve it, you could come to me. You could find rest in me. You could find restoration in me. And really, it's only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection we are made clean. The, The things that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, us getting a new heart, new flesh, us being clean from our idols and our own heart idols, it's not about what we can do, what we can muster up. It's what Christ has done. So friends, I want to encourage you. Don't think too much about your prayers. Simply this afternoon, I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Ask. But when you ask, ask in God's name and rely on His character and His goodness and know that God's going to meet your need. Amen? All right, let's pray. I'm going to give you guys a moment. I'm going to invite the worship team. I'm going to give you guys a moment to just um, maybe process what this parable is about. Uh, Not saying persistence doesn't work. There are different passages, different parables. But this one really is not about our persistence or our willingness to boldly ask. But it's really about leaning on the nature and the character of God. This passage is is Jesus showing us, hey, this is who the Father is. This is how much the Father is willing to hear you. This is how much Father is willing to love you. So don't worry too much about all the other things, but come to Him. And when you come, when you seek, when you ask, when you knock, He will answer, He will hear you, and the door will be open.